from the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio, this is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. Welcome to Season 3 of our podcast. We are so glad you could join us. This podcast navigates issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences and as we discuss these often avoided topics. Today is the first time in our podcast's history that we welcome two guests in the same episode, Jules Biber and Callie Sugatsky from Chamber Queer, an LGBTQ plus chamber music organization in New York City dedicated to presenting and performing queer composers and musicians and highlighting historical queer figures in classical music. Jules and Callie, we are delighted to have you with us today. Welcome to Orchestrating Change. Thank you for having us. It's great to be here. It is so nice to have you both. Uh, Jules, I've had the pleasure of meeting you once already. Uh, and Kelly, this is the first time I'm getting to meet you, but so glad that you could join us today. So like Matthew just said, first time, we have two people on the podcast. So usually we just say, hey, introduce yourself. But now I'll kind of direct that. We'll go have both of you introduce yourselves. Just tell us a little bit about you, who you are, how you kind of became the person you are now. Uh, you can, you know, highlights of the life, I guess. And Jules, why don't we start with you? Oh boy, how much time do you have? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm Jules Biber. Um, I'm a cellist. I live in Brooklyn. Oh, that's my dog drinking her water. Um, <laughs> the lapping sound you hear. Um, how did I get to where I am? Well, you know, I, I, I grew up in Boston and I started playing cello in Boston when I was about eight years old. Um, I uh, ended up in New York um, when I was like 18 years old and I haven't really left. I did spend two years in Cleveland actually at, the, at CIM, Cleveland Institute of Music for two years, but then I immediately came back to New York and I've been, you know, uh, freelancing, playing in orchestras, playing chamber music, teaching, um, and uh, Pretty recently, a few years ago, um, as you guys know, we started. Was a I'm a co-founder of Chamber Queer, um, and that's been a really um, amazing venture that for the past few years, and we're really excited about um, where it's going. Awesome, Callie. What about you? Uh, I'm Callie, and I play viola. I grew up in Portland, Maine. Uh, went to Oberlin, also ended up in New York uh, for the past decade. I was living in New York and freelancing, playing um, New York City Opera, New York City Ballet, New Jersey Symphony on Broadway, as well as a lot of chamber music. Um, I love new music and have played with a whole lot of the new music ensembles in New York. Um, but this year I'm a seasoned musician with Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra, so I've been uh, living the full-time orchestral life for the past few weeks. Wow. Wow, congratulations. Yeah. That's incredible. That's so exciting. Mm -hmm. So, Jules, you are a co-founder of Chamber Queer. Some of us know a little bit about you already, uh, especially anyone involved in the OCLP, the Orchestrating Change Leadership Program, which uh, you're, you heard four participants of in the last season, the last episode of season two. But for those of you who are unfamiliar, tell us a little bit about Chamber Queer and why you founded it. I had been feeling for a long time, as I think a lot of people feel, that there's sort of um, not a space in classical music for many types of folks. Um, it sort of is a space that has traditionally been not so welcoming to people of color, um, queer people, um, and it's been a very much a white space for many, many years um, in general. Um, and we, you know, I was talking to my friend Andrew, who is um, in the Ataka Quartet, cellist of the Ataka Quartet, 
you know, we were having a conversation just about the classical music world. This one night we were at post uh, at a concert, you know, some night in Brooklyn in 2018. And we just started talking about all the issues, you know, problems that we felt uh, classical music was was dealing with in the moment in terms of welcoming, um, you know, many types of people. And we were like, you know, we should start an organization that highlights queer people, you know, that highlights um, underrepresented folks in classical music. Um, what would that look like? Like, what's that? What would that be? Um, and Andrea was like, you know, it's funny because I was just talking to um, my friend Danielle, um, a singer, um, and she was saying the same kind of stuff, like how cool would it be to start an organization that really, you know, does this kind of work. And um, so anyway, long story short, we all got together and um, Danielle brought her friend Brian Mubbert, um, who's also one of the co-founders, and we all just got together one day and we were like, hey, how can we do this? Um, what does this look like? Um, and so we we started it up, and it was the first the first concert we had was really a workshop. We sort of called it a workshop, and you know we we got the word out very, you know, like not in any kind of official way. We were just like put, posted something on Facebook, I guess, and about you know we're going to do this workshop. Um, we're called Chamber Queer, and we're going to play a bunch of music by queer people with queer performers, and we're going to see what happens. <laughs> and it was at this little venue, you know, because we're like, oh, maybe we, we don't know how many people we're going to get. And it was just like packed, like the whole place was packed with all these people that just seemed to come out of the woodwork. Um, and we were just like, whoa, OK, like this is really interesting, right? Like all of these people are here for a reason. All of these people feel something about classical music, the world that they live in and feel like oh, like, what is this organization that's trying to make some change? Like, I want to see what this is about. And um, and that was really telling for us. And that was a, the, the first experience we had with it. And um, we've really just grown from there. We've had a full, um, uh, in 2019, we had a full concert in for Pride Month. We had th a three-day event. Um, and it was really exciting and um felt pretty historic in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, we've been going from there. We have community events, which are sort of non-concert events, but that um, engage the community um, and create space to just talk and hang out. And, um, you know, we're in the, we're gonna be planning our big season um, for June coming up. So stay tuned for that. Yeah. Anyway, that's a long-winded answer. But. <laughs> no, I, and it's so cool. I've heard you talk about it, but I'm interested. Callie, how did you, because, you know, you weren't, you're not one of the founding members. How did you get drawn into what was happening at Chamber Queer? Um, I was asked to play one of the concerts that I think happened pretty early on. Yeah. Um, and it was amazing. Like, it was the kind of gig where you just say yes, because obviously this is, like, exactly the kind of project that I'd like to be involved with. Um and I know, yeah, I, I know the folks involved, and I mean, it's it's an amazing environment for music making, but it's also really high level players and really wonderful people. Um, so that it's been super rewarding to work with Chamber Queer whenever I've had a chance. And in general, it whenever I've been in an environment in classical music where there are a lot of queer people, it feels really different and it feels like I can be a truer version of myself and make a truer version of music. Um, so it's it's like classical music really needs more spaces like that. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So your mission, as I mentioned at the top, is to program queer composers performed by queer musicians. What does this look like when you're putting together a concert program? What 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 are is it, what's an example of a typical chamber queer program? So it really depends um, on you know where we're playing or what kind of show we're doing. But for instance, for our last June festival, um, we featured music from you know we from like the early Baroque period to stuff that was made up on the spot um, by, you know, various folks. So we really like to run the gamut of eras. We don't really limit ourselves to one 
or the other or, you know, only new music or only old music. You know, what we do like to do is always be looking through sort of that queer lens. And what and that what 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 that meaning is can change for us. And it has changed sometimes from concert to concert. Like for instance, um, you know, on our on that one of those June programs, we featured the music. Uh, we played some uh, madrigals by Monteverdi that were sung, and we interspersed that with, um, you know, we have a friend who and collaborator Gray McMurray, who's this electric guitar player, I was telling you about, and he's always really been drawn to these Monteverdi pieces, right? So Monteverdi, like, who knows? Is he gay or not? Who, you know. Probably not, but that's not what it's about. It's not about, I just want to, you know, um, make clear that it's not about sort of being like, oh, who are the gay composers in music history and let's like play them. It's more like what, it's again back to this lens, what inspires us as queer people about classical music, mm -hmm. right? Yes, sometimes we love to play Schubert. Yes, we love to play Handel. Both of those folks were gay in case some people on this podcast don't know, but you know, for instance, that thing, the interplay between Monteverdi and Gray, um, what happened in that show was we just asked Gray, we said, hey, like, what, like, what do you love about this piece and what do you want to bring to it? Um, and it ended up being that between each Monteverdi movement, Gray would do an improvisation, um, sort of commenting on it and adding to it that led into the next movement. But anyway, not getting too off track. Yeah, so it's sort of like that kind of thing yeah. where we really like to let the people we collaborate with be free in w the way that they want to express themselves, whatever that means to them, right? Yeah. So in a lot of ways, we, we are, we are, you know, the four of us, we're the founders and sometimes we do concerts together and that's really wonderful. But what we're really about, I think our core mission is to really just um, be a collective of people that um, talk about these issues, that perform about these issues and create space for queerness and music in whatever way we feel is right for the moment. Yeah. So. Kind of a follow-up question to that, Callie, is there a particular concert that you remember uh, or an example of a program that just like really spoke to you as a player when you were, when you were performing it for people? Yeah, it might have been my first concert with Chamber Queer, but um, I mean, there is something so healthy about um, an intentional atmosphere in classical music. Mm. I think the default in classical music is uh, is an atmosphere that is not always welcoming, or is an atmosphere that has a lot of assumptions that are not kind to everyone or not right for everyone or are really exclusive to a lot of people. Um, so the first thing I remember is just the before we even got to the performance, um, that it feels different when those assumptions are not part of rehearsal. And it feels different where there's a little more space for, for not just your like work persona, but your identity. Mm -hmm. um, but the concert I think what was memorable about the concert is that the audience was vibrant. The audience was enthusiastic. Like there was a different way of interacting with music. I think because of the programming, because of the place that the concert happened and because of the people that showed up, um, because of the work that Chamber Queer did to make this performance happen. Um, I think I played a string trio, maybe by Schubert, like something more standard. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I also played a piece uh, that I commissioned by Mare Berger, and they are a Brooklyn-based composer and performer. Um, and the piece was commissioned. There's a piece written for double bass that is basically a male orgasm, and. This piece, I saw it performed and was blown away. It's so cool to have like that kind of content in a concert. But the when I when I was interested in performing it myself, when I read about the piece, all of the language was pointedly male. Like he will do this, this in, and to have a piece that was so exclusive, even to like who can play it, um, made me angry, but also inspired. So I commissioned Mayor Berger to write a piece of music that had a differently shaped orgasm and that had 
that was, um, and sometimes we talked about it being a femme orgasm, or but just a piece of music that is that has different climaxes than maybe typical classical music has, um, and a piece of music that welcomed its performance to be played by anybody, no matter what their body was or what their experience was, um, and so to, to just like to be performing a piece that is basically uh, an orgasm was definitely a, a memorable first performance with Chamber Queer. Yeah, I can wow. imagine yeah, that would be. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and this is, you know, sort of, it just reminds me of the, um, you know, we, we did a festival um, one during, we called Chamber Quarantine this past, you know, during COVID <laughs> when we had to cancel our, um, our concert. And, you know, this is what we're all about. We're all about being like, releasing the artists on our audiences, right? Like, and what do you want to do? Like, so we had so many, and it was a little, you know, cause we had this very curated program. And I think we started out being like, oh, we have to really, you know, be in con a little, have a little bit of sort of control over what's happening and keep it organized in this very sort of set kind of way. Um, and then once, you know, um, the COVID happened, we were like, okay, so, we're really pretty limited in our time frame. We're pretty limited in all these other ways. So we kind of had to be like, give it up for the to the artists to do what they wanted. We literally just said to people about 50 of our friends and acquaintances, we're like, what does being a queer artist mean to you? And we got so many amazing responses in all kinds of formats, using all kinds of technology, some not using any technology, but just it ran the gamut of things um and it's just like this is this is what we're all about is like if Callie wants to play a piece where she's having a female orgasm playing her viola like great that's awesome you know like and you know if someone wants to record a plastic bag floating down an alleyway in Brooklyn and then like improvise on top of it that's great <laughs> go for it you know so I think just you know in terms of we actually learned a lot from chamber quarantine in the it, sort of in in the sense that that's okay to do right it's okay to be artist-led mm -hmm. be queer-led queer artist-led and you get things that you would have never gotten had you controlled that process in a different way mm. yeah so. amazing yeah so callie you mentioned something that you loved about your first performance with Chamber Queer, and that was that the audience was vibrant. Mm -hmm. yes. Tell us about the type of audiences you see at your programs. I think I am always seeking in the programming that I do or the projects that I'm involved with, like classical music is incredible. I, I am just, I love it. And I think it it is, that when people experience it and can connect with it, it is such an amazing thing. But I also think that classical music, most classical institutions suck at being relevant. Um, that there are all these conventions that seem important to classical music that are actually really harming the ways that we can have dialogue with our community and the ways that we can connect with people and the way that even if we're doing things that are very traditional, that it can be really powerful for everyone but only if we're presenting it in the right way mm. um and i loved that that first show that i played with chamber queer um it was young people it was older people it was people that lived in that neighborhood i think it was people that had traveled maybe an hour on the train um it felt good that it was a lot of, I mean, it was a lot of queer people. So it felt cool that the performers and the audiences looked like each other mm -hmm. and sometimes loved each other. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was like a bunch of people that I was so happy to be sharing, not only things that were personal or queer specific, but also just classical music in general. Um, it is not, I, I think in general, the audience at the shows that I've been a part of have not been a Lincoln Center audience, have not been a New York Philharmonic audience. Um, but I think those are the people that the New York Phil needs to show up, um, or those are the people that Lincoln Center should welcome, but haven't figured out how to do that. Mm. Um, and I think Chamber Queer is, has found a way to be really relevant and really powerful 
to a much wider swath of people than classical music usually can can reach. Yeah. Just to add a little to that, um, sorry, there's a little construction here. What can what can you do in New York City? So yeah, anyway. welcome to Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> yeah, welcome to Brooklyn. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the audience part of the thing is that it's just people feeling comfortable in space, no matter how, no matter what your sexual orientation is, no matter who you are, like just feeling comfortable in a place. And I think places like Lincoln Center are wonderful, like they're amazing halls to hear music. But I think that um, if you want to engage people, you have to go to them. I think you have to be in spaces that everyone feels good and everyone feels comfortable. And that means you're wearing what you feel like wearing. You're, you know, you're not feeling like you, you know, have to act a certain way that you don't usually, you know, you, you don't have to put anything on, right? So even just having concerts in spaces that are not concert halls is a huge thing. Mm-hmm. Because that's an easy step, right? You, you're, you like the series. Um, the place we had our first concert was actually a bar, um, where I used to just run a, a series called Branded Classical, um, and uh, I'd literally just invite my friends to come play. Um, they had a concert they were doing, and they wanted to try things out, um, and that that wasn't even. This was pre-chamber queer, so it was just like I started to learn a lot about just audiences, I think, just seeing how comfortable audiences were in those spaces and having people just come off the street that would never go to Lincoln Center to a concert and just be like, oh, this is so great. Like classical music in a bar. Like, wow. You know, and I know there's there's a lot of groups that are doing this kind of thing right now. And I think there just needs to be more of it. There needs to be more music in spaces where people feel comfortable. Yeah. Uh, we've talked a lot about um these this next topic I, I feel kind of in our language but um on your website you know you talk about there's the other part of your mission besides you know queer performers queer composers is also creating inclusive environments and intersectional places as well which is maybe a term that people don't know on the podcast um but i remember talking to danielle one of the founders back in the summer and she she's like she was she was like how do i sum up chamber queer and she told me she was like it's queer theory in action um and i was wondering if maybe you all could kind of unpack that statement for us and this idea of inclusivity and intersectionality and everything that you all do yeah um callie do you want to talk no you should talk okay um so you know, Danielle is like, she. I'm sure she'd have her own explanation for things, but I think just what we're do, trying to do at Chamber Queer is to challenge the norm, which I think is what queer theory is always doing. Um, taking sort of the standard and saying, hey, this doesn't work for all people. This only works for a certain type of people. Um, so I think everything we do is sort of rooted in that um, idea of, of just challenging and questioning the norm. And uh, yeah, I guess that's that's how I see it. I mean, I'm sure Danielle would have a much more beautiful, beautifully worded answer. She's very, she's very smart. Um, also, my wife, so I have to say my thing. <laughs> yeah, that's um, expected. <laughs> when you were talking about challenging the norm, it made me think about how classical music really is a norm. Like, there's a way in which classical music is an exaggerated version, typically, of the norm. And I think orchestral music especially sits on an even farther end of that where um, there's such tradition and, but in some ways that's the problem that there's been with classical music is that, um, that I think in sticking with some of its traditions or in adhering to how important the norm is in music school, in grad school, in auditions, in symphony life, that that classical music is really missing out on a way to stay relevant, a way to stay connected, a way to um, reach more people in an organic way. Um, And so, yeah, it does seem like Chamber Queer addresses those things in a fantastic way. And and the response clearly is including so many more people than than it previously been included. And that's really powerful. Yeah. So yeah. I have a question to follow up with the past several answers here. 
So one of the beautiful things about an organization like Chamber Queer is since you're playing chamber music, it's very easy to move it into a different space. And if, if it's a smaller space, like it takes fewer people to pack the house and there, are, there aren't as many performers, so it doesn't cost as much to produce. What can the bigger organizations like orchestras, full orchestras, who have subscriber bases, donor bases that expect a certain thing that maybe as a result is preventing this crowd, the other crowd over here from feeling comfortable at the orchestra. What can orchestras learn from Chamber Queer that might allow them to sort of balance those two conflicting forces? That's the million dollar question. I mean, I think, you know, I think, and Callie, you're going to, I'm sure you have like a lot to say because Callie, Callie has been doing a lot of orchestra stuff, especially these days. Um, but I would say that there are ways to be nimble as an orchestra. And I think orchestra musicians love to play chamber music, right? There's so many ways to get people out of the hall and into the neighborhoods and into schools and into all different kinds of places, um, creating you know, and, and when you talk about sort of what was once called outreach, which is now called engagement, which I think is a much better term, um, I think it really is that. You have to engage people. You have to meet them where they're at, just like meeting them in a bar or meeting them in a, another space. And I think, yeah, I, I, so in there's that where, you know, put people in chamber ensembles, take them into the community, engage with ensembles that are already happening, kids ensembles and queer organizations, even just the um, Gay Straight Alliance at a school, right? Like, are there any composers or musicians there? Like, what do you guys want to do? You know, um, there's probably, there's most likely lots of queer people in the orchestra that you're conducting. Like, what do they want to do, right? So I think it's like, oftentimes not about us finding the answers, it's just about listening to the people who have not been heard and the people who are like, you know, don't even know they have th something to say about it, but giving them a platform and then going from there. So, um, but in terms of, I think, the orchestra itself um, and creating an environment that feels welcoming, I would say dress code is huge. I mean, I know that you guys have changed your dress code. I remember Rachel telling me this. Yeah, I, I don't know if the dress code for, I'd have to ask Mike if the dress code for the symphony itself has changed, but I personally changed the youth symphony dress code. And right. it's just now a bullet point list of things to wear that you can. It's like, choose what you want, friends. Um, and I've parents, for the most part, haven't been confused by it. I had one parent who was confused that there wasn't like a male, female. And I said, just they pick what they want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. And yeah. that's huge. You know, like that, even just that is like a kid coming into the to, and I think we were, I remember talking about this, but I, you know, can't emphasize it enough, just a kid being, having the option of wearing something that makes them feel empowered and makes them feel comfortable, um, especially when they're on a stage for like maybe the first or second time or like early in their life. It's like, I remember as a kid, and maybe Callie can speak to this too, just like having to wear a dress or like a skirt and just being like so not comfortable with that. You know, and of course, that's going to take away from from my artistic expression because I'm not comfortable, mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe not a ton, but like, you know, it definitely it definitely doesn't put those kids who are not conforming um, in a good place, you know, so I don't know, Callie, I'm sure you have stuff to say about this. Yeah, I mean, it's it is a really difficult question and it's something I'm always thinking about is um, what can bigger classical music institutions do? Um, I think part of the problem is that assimilation seems to be so much a part of classical music culture from, from private lessons, from your first orchestra experience all the way through school, all the way to an orchestra experience or whatever your professional life is, that, um, that there's got to be a way that we can make music and blend and, you know, even when there's 85 people on stage, come at something together without having such pressure to assimilate mm -hmm. to norms. Um, and that's a really abstract thing, but 
but wherever we can change the culture and classical music to value um, so much of the tradition, but also to think about the ways that classical music is really harmful or the history of classical music being racist, being white supremacist, like really yeah. excluding people that I think some of it is from the bottom up or the top down, just changing um, the value of assimilating to one certain ideal in everything we're doing. Um, but I also like in terms of orchestra, like I have a dream that every orchestra concert has a section in the hall where people can be um, painting in response to the music or writing in response to the music or drawing in response to the music or texting because that's how people connect sometimes or taking videos or live tweeting or dancing or moving. Like I think every concert should have maybe a section in the hall where people don't feel so constrained um, or maybe yeah. one piece on every program can be the piece that the audience is given permission to video or tweet or post or live stream. Um, I think there's ways that we have to give up this idea that the concert hall is this sacred place and nothing about that experience is malleable because mm -hmm. we have to honor these donors or this you know typical crowd that we're thinking. And I actually think everybody's held back by that. So to open up how people can connect with the music and really like physically in the concert hall um yeah open up like ways people can be interacting with this wonderful art form that we all care so much about yeah yeah and that reminds me you know just like the just the notion that classical music is this people think of it as you know obviously very serious kind of music you know i teach a history class at hunter college for undergrads who really don't you know aren't music majors but they're taking it as an elective and when i ask them what they think of what's like honestly what is what do you think about classical music what comes to your mind and it's without a doubt like always like it's very serious um it's for fancy people um you know it's bougie I think I get bougie, I get bougie a lot. And, you know, music wasn't always, classical music itself wasn't always like that. It was like very, it, like for so long, it wasn't like that. You know, it was like, you think about Vivaldi, you think about Baroque composers, you think about like all the improvisation that was happening and expected, you know, and people, like if you look at the, the paintings from back in the day, the iconography, like it's just, it looks like a party. It's very raucous in some, yes, in the courts, it's very fancy and everyone's very buttoned up, but there's so many places that music has existed. Classical music has existed where it was, that was the pop music, you know, it was like for a long time that was, you know, and, and after Beethoven sometime, it was just all of a sudden it became, everything has to be just so, and no clapping between movements and none of this, you know, um, and I think a lot was lost because of that. And again, it, it, yeah, as Kali says, it's like sort of, we have this pedestal you know, we have these composers who are wonderful, like Beethoven and Schubert and Brahms and all these people. Um, but it's like, they're not museum pieces, right? This music is pliable and should be, and they shouldn't be these sacred um, idols that we worship, right? And I think poking holes in these notions and like pairing old music with new music and, and putting a new lenses on things, I think makes it alive again in this way that more people can relate to because mm. people aren't just going to listen because you say this is great right and i like this like there's like i don't want to listen you know if someone says that to me about something i don't know about, i'm not going to be like oh yeah you're totally right that's great you know i need to have a connection to it mm. so unless we break down these walls these museum walls and you know put different ways of thinking about this older music and this new music um you know, giving people new ways to think about it, then it's gonna, gonna keep, you know, dying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Honestly, I, yeah, th I think also oh, yeah. to to be queer is to often be thinking about equity. Yeah, and I think that to queer classical music is to bring more equity into yeah. what we're doing, like who's playing and whose music we're hearing and who has access to this. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think uh, that it has stopped working to cater to the 1% or it has stopped working to cater to 
the rich, older, white patrons. It has stopped working to program only for the subscribers that we're not even really sure what they like, but we're afraid that it's mm-hmm. that, that it's only Mozart. Um, that I think there has to be the classical music has to change. That the classical music has been harmful in ways that we just can't keep programming as we've been programming. Um, right. In terms of equity, and I think there are going to be some casualties in change and in moving forward. But, but the vision is that when things are opened up, with equity at the center, who's performing, who's programming, who's listening, of course it's going to be better. Um, and yeah. and that's you know, just- and it just comes down to representation matters. You know, and I think orchestras are starting and chamber groups are starting to move in the right direction in many ways, not everybody, but like composing more people of color, more black people, um, you know, engaging in various ways with the with communities. Um, but I think it needs to be structural change, like, right, you can put a bunch of people of color on a stage and that doesn't really necessarily solve your problems, right? It, the decision makers have to change. The people who make decisions in classical music, the people who sit on boards, they have to change. It has to not be all white people. It has to be all different kinds of people. Yeah. Um, and that's the only way that anything's going to change. Yeah. But that's really hard because the money is still, you know, in these places that, you know, mostly white people, older, the demographic tends to, to be that. Um, and you do have to, you know, pay people and you want to pay people. Many of these people that you want to pay are people of color and black people. And, you know, so it's it's a hard thing. But I think if you aren't brave and you don't lead, then nothing's going to change. So, you know, and it's easy for us to say this because we're this like, you know, organization that's sort of like, you know, very small and um, grassroots. But I think it's it's it, it's clear that bigger organizations need to take note and they need to make changes for sure. We've uh, talked to several guests in prior episodes about boards in the classical music world. And as we've learned, the way you get on a board is generally by being asked to join by somebody who's already on the board. And as Mm. we've also learned through a board and staff diversity exercise that we did, most of the people that we all know look like us are yeah. like us yeah and i it was i was through this whole conversation uh, the, uh, what my next i was gonna ask like mm-hmm. how do we define intersectionality and then this entire conversation just answered it for me yeah. you know like this entire past conversation this idea of like um inclusivity and what it means to actually be advocating for change is equity at all you know you all you just said everything that you know i is intersectionality and what we should be striving for um and you know it kind of leads to we've started this now on the podcast of having a time where you the guests recommend something that the listeners Mm -hmm. should be maybe involved in or reading or listening to um and i'm wondering like after this conversation it could be just something fun right it doesn't have to be something serious um but is there anything that you think you know on these topics that our listeners should be involved in or or know about um so who i'm curious who are your listeners how would you describe your listeners that this that's a question that i don't 100 percent know the answer to we have i've looked at the, the demographics of where people listen from and it's pretty spread out we actually have quite a few listeners which is really exciting hello everyone um uh, uh, and but i if i'm going to assume i, I don't know i don't want to make assumptions about who's listening i know that a number of my friends Listen, yeah, remember, uh, I was like, I saw lots of my friends listen. So, so. Yeah, I was going to say, a lot of the out-of-state listeners, I'm like, oh, California, that's my college roommate, or stuff like that. So I, I know that I know some people who do listen, and, and we, we talk, they, they text me or call me mm-hmm. at when the episodes are released to let me know what yeah. they thought. We but also other do than have, that, I'm not sure. We have, I mean, there are Canton Symphony Orchestra patrons who listen, and at our first concert back, which was, uh, we're recording this in October, of 2021 um our first concert back i had several people come up to me and talk about how much they love the podcast over 
and they were mostly older white people. Um, so it That's was really great. exciting that they were listening. So yeah, I, I don't know 100%. I know Nathan, our marketing manager, is doing some demographic research right now about that. So we'll have a better understanding, hopefully, in a little bit. Well, I guess because I asked only because I'm like, when it's sort of like what recommendations of what to listen to, I think, or, or do, I think if you're interested in learning more about queer issues, I think, you know, um, there's one of my uh, favorite authors of some queer theory stuff actually is em Dr. Emily Wilburn. Um, she, she writes some uh, really amazing, she has some great articles um, and uh, a book or two and she deals a lot with older vocal music and the, the um, uh, queer issues um, that around the strati and also just pants rolls and things like that. So that's a really interesting, uh, I've been reading that recently, uh, some, some Emily Wilburn, she's great. Um, I think, you know, just get to know, I think learning about, um, you know, if you're not familiar um, or scared of pronouns and, um, you know, recent trend, re not trends, but recent, you know, um, ways that people are identifying and feel comfortable um, being referred to, I think sort of brushing up on that can be really helpful to queer people. Um, you know, instead of saying sir and ma'am and, uh, you know, referring to groups like just saying hey everyone or hey y'all or things like even little things like that I think um, can be really helpful for queer people if that's sort of like this is the focus of the show and like what can you do to be a better ally I think those are some really basic ways to do that yeah you know anything Callie, you, Callie? how about you yeah. My favorite composer right now is Yaz Lancaster, and they are a black, non-binary, multidisciplinary musician and poet and artist. Um, and I love they they've written a lot of chamber music, and I love their stuff. So if there was one composer I'm the most excited about right now, I would recommend Yaz Lancaster. Oh, awesome! Um, and then I also I wonder if your listeners. Are, are interested in discovering more music or connecting to different kinds of classical music. Mm -hmm. Decomposed is an ensemble in Chicago, mm -hmm. um, and they have all of these Spotify playlists called The Sounds of Black Composers. And I think for Pride Month, they even did a couple of um, black queer composer playlists. You know, it's not just one or two tokenized composers. It's like a whole playlist mm -hmm. that you can listen to. Um, and I also really love the work that Castle of Our Skins is yes. doing. They're a Boston-based ensemble, and they tend to curate programs that really like resonates with the kind of music that I love. Um, but their yeah, their performers are excellent, and I've discovered so many new composers through their programming, through their YouTube series through their website. Um, they're doing amazing work mm -hmm. and I would definitely suggest people check them out. Yeah. Now that you mentioned those organizations, I can think of a few more. So Sphinx organization yeah. is awesome. They do great stuff. I'm sure you guys know about yeah, that. They've we, been had, on the podcast. we had Dr. Anna Brontes on the yeah. podcast, their uh, director cool. of educational programming, yeah. and she yeah. was absolutely wonderful. Yeah. She's also yeah, connected me with a bunch of people too. So she's been good. awesome. Yeah, Sphinx organization is wonderful. Um, also, Chinicky Orchestra mm -hmm. or Chinicky, I forget how you say it, um, yeah. but they are an incredible orchestra based in London, um, and they are they play at the BBC Proms. They're doing stuff all over. Um, they also have chamber. They have a lot of content online. So I would suggest to any teachers out there mm -hmm. who are teaching courses on music or um, you know are going to suggest a piece to listen to or watch if you can find a performance by an orchestra that has representation mm -hmm. um and you know that's always really helpful because yeah. again i can't stress enough how much representation really matters in education in learning um because if you don't see yourself it's hard to connect with whatever you're learning mm -hmm. so yeah. i would suggest you know like for my class when i teach 
Um, I'm always looking for, you know, not just the Leonard Bernstein recording with all white New York Philharmonic people, right? <laughs> like there's so many great recordings with people of color. Yeah. Um, so go for those. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we talked a little bit already about um, creating, how, what can we do as big organizations that mimics maybe, you know, it's, it, we cannot mimic what Chamber Queer does. I don't think in any we could definitely try. Um, but I, I kind of have this question of, um, you all are based in New York City. We are in Canton, Ohio. Mm -hmm. America's very large and full of a lot of very different types of communities. Yeah. Um, so I wonder for communities that this would be shocking, uh, this conversation is shocking. What does, what can we do, especially in a place like Canton, Ohio, which is not as culturally diverse as New York City, does not have as many organizations like Chamber Queer. What could we, what, what is your recommendation for spaces like that that are just a little bit different and maybe are not as open or are welcoming to this, these kinds of ideas? Um, I, I'll just say quickly, I think finding the queer organizations that are already there um, and engaging with them um, and seeing what their needs are. Um, people within your own organization, queer folks, people of color, um, like what do you guys wanna do? How do you wanna um, you know, move forward or make changes? Um, I think it's oftentimes the, the things we're looking for in organizations, the people we're looking for are right there. They just need a, a platform. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, Callie, do you have anything you wanna add? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about how it's easy to frame these conversations as radical rather than more mm -hmm. open and inclusive. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think in the same ways that assumptions can hurt me, they can hurt someone who lives in Canton, Ohio. Mm -hmm. They can hurt someone who lives in Pittsburgh. And so as mm -hmm. much as we can normalize, um, I mean, something as simple as, having many different salutations so that someone could choose mix on your mm -hmm. form that you fill out online or having more and more opportunities for people to share their pronouns that is not only in queer spaces but just everyone yeah. i think there's a lot of ways to normalize the kind of processes that maybe queer people have created or, or pioneered but but there are a lot of ways in which like i think little changes um is not about catering to a queer community, but is actually about opening up uh, spaces to just for everyone to feel more comfortable or for everybody to enter in without being pinned down by the assumptions that others might have about them. Whether that's yeah, and I think and I think I've gotten feedback from a lot of my you know straight identifying friends that like sort of having that um, element of choice in in these sort of matters even these box checking things like what do you want to be called what's your pronoun has created a lot more freedom even for someone who is identifies as straight and will continue to identify as straight because the burden is released for everybody not just queer people when we create space for flexibility and fluidity and you know so it's not like I think it makes everyone a little breathe a little easier. So it's not just yeah, as Callie's saying, um, it's not just catering to queer people. I think that's a really important thing to to distinguish between. Yeah. Now, sure uh, in these conversations that we're not um, a race. I think in classical music, it's so easy to think about the default being white people, the default mm -hmm. being older white people, and um, I think there are so many more people that we want to include when we change how we do things. And to think about um, even in states like Ohio or Pennsylvania that that there is more diversity than maybe is usually visible because mm -hmm. the default is whiteness. Um, so just to think about not catering as much to these norms, um, it is not really radical. It's not really so yeah. hard to do when you think about how many people you're including. Yeah. But, you know, I understand also like that there's a lot of resistance right now, especially in certain places and that are not New York City, even in New York City, you know, we have resistance to lots of, um, you know, these sort of new um, things that are happening in society, these new choices 
that are um, being becoming available to people. Um, so it it is it is a challenge, and I think that you know you're not going to get everybody right. Like you're never going to get everybody to see the way we would like them to, right? But I think all we can do is um, through whatever sort of power we have within our own small organizations or large organizations, like these small little changes really do make a difference. And, you know, even just having a gender neutral bathroom in your venue or hall, um, it's huge, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I also think Jules touched on this, but um, I tend to feel like it's easy to see through initiatives that are not genuine or it's easy to, for everybody involved, I think, to detect when things are happening to check a diversity box or Mm -hmm. happening to, um, you know, I think there's a lot of ways that if you don't have queer people on your planning team or if you don't have people of color uh, in places who are making, in in positions where they can be making decisions, um, that a lot of initiatives, it's pretty easy to see through them. Um, yeah. to make sure that we're making changes, but we're also making changes that are well-informed and that, that are generated from the people whose voices we need to hear. Yeah. Uh, so let's take a moment to talk a little bit about allyship. What does it mean for us and an organi- and organizations to be allies, and how can we all be better allies? I think that's a really important question. Um, and I think sort of it, it's it's uh, part of what we're talking about mm-hmm. with all of these other things, right? Like it's it, it really just all of these things that we've been saying, um, you know, creating choices for people in the way that they identify on forms, um, how they show up to a concert, how they can go to the bathroom. Um, that's all part of being an ally. Um, and I think also just back to that same idea of, this being allyship being for everybody, right? It's not just, I am going to create space in my life for you as a queer person and your new needs that I have no relation to, right? It's like when everyone feels included, you know, everyone feels included. Yeah. So it's like, it's not about accommodating people. It's about like, I accommodate you or like I welcome you and all your nuances and differences and I'll do this person will do the same for me. So it's like, it's really just about creating this very symbiotic relationship that everybody benefits from. I think once we stop framing it as, you know, we need to make changes because this is what the culture needs us to do right now. And it's like, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, I think it, it, it just, we have to get away from that way of thinking. Yeah. Callie, anything from you? I think especially because we are in the business of performing and creating sound, that allyship should often look like amplifying voices and making sure we're aware of whose voices um, we're listening to, whose voices we're not listening to. Um, so I think allyship also needs to, to be sure to, to be more inclusive and to be more critical mm. of of who we're amplifying and who we're promoting and and who we're giving visibility to. So, yeah, so important. um, Amplifying voices that are underrepresented and underheard um, and also calling things out when you hear them in spaces where those people are not, Mm. right? Like being an ally is when you hear someone feeling like they can just say whatever they want or make hurtful comments and sometimes violent comments um, about people that, you're bold enough to say, hey, you know, that that's not okay with me. And you don't have to be like, you know, like get out, get out your, you know, your switchblade, but like, but just being like, you know, that, no, that's mm-hmm. not okay. Like, that's not cool with me. You know, yeah. that's, or, or I don't agree with that. Um, obviously you don't want to put yourself in any situations that might be dangerous because I think, you know, in other places, like, again, we, we are so in this bubble in New York City and I constantly have to remind myself that there's so many places you know, not just in the world, but in the United States where people, queer people still feel really scared and frightened and scared to come out. And, you know, it's, uh, I think it's every little thing um, helps, especially when, you know, people feel that they can talk, you know, not amongst the PC people and they get called out by people, their peers, people like them, 
quote unquote. Um, I think that's a really powerful thing and important. Yeah. So I have a piggyback question off of mm -hmm. this. Rachel and I work with our youth orchestras, uh, which our organization serves between 75 and 100 kids per season in a typical year. And Amazing. the kids come from very, very different. It's not a racially diverse group, but the kids certainly come from an ideologically diverse spectrum where you may have some kids who are discovering as they grow up that they might be queer of some kind, but maybe they come from a background where that would not go over particularly well. How can we, or, or really any anyone working with youth in that type of environment, how can we, what, what can we do, people like us do, to advocate and, and be there for kids who, in that situation? I love, um, I love asking kids about their pronouns, even if it's a group of four or five-year-olds and they, it's also like an opportunity to teach them what pronouns are. Mm -hmm. um, so when I've taught younger students, I think normalizing that practice, not in a, yeah, not, not in a way where it's radical. It's just like, how do you want me to call you? How would you like people to refer to you? And to also, mm -hmm. um, make whatever classroom or place that I'm teaching a space where to let them know like this can be playful or you can choose one pronoun today and you can choose a different pronoun tomorrow. Um, that it's, to, I think like reinforce that so much is fluid and and if we're all approaching life as if we're learning, that means that, that we should make a space for a lot of changes all the time. Um, mm -hmm. So I think like pronouns are a really big deal and and talking to kids with as much of the gender removed from the language as possible, mm -hmm. because you might not always know based on how someone's presenting or even what they're saying, um, yeah. how they're feeling or how they're growing. Yeah, yeah and it, it's in, you find gender stuff and like I have a nephew who's three and like it's just like even in the books, like even books that I, I remember reading yes. him books when, from my, when I was a kid and it's just like, oh my God, it's so much, there's so, it's so gendered and it's like, so limiting in so many ways, you know? So I always make it like when I'm, I know that you're not talking about three-year-olds, but like, well, I think just recognizing there's so much gender that we don't even notice, genderizing that we don't even notice in society and just like sort of pulling that back, pulling back the the veil on that a little bit. Like, I don't know, like for, with my nephew, I remember I was doing, there was, I made a point to whenever I saw a truck driver, I would refer to them as she or a you know, construction worker. I'm like, what, are, what do you think she's doing? Or like, you know, in books. And I think just on the, on the sort of talking about a youth orchestra um, uh, age appropriate thing in that way is yes, as Kali's saying, creating a playful space and a inclusive space and a safe space to be who you are, you know, um, state your pronoun that you want for that day or that year or that month <laughs> um, and normalizing that. Um, also, I think even in more subtle ways, just affirming things like they come in that day wearing something that maybe they'd never worn before. So they come in with maybe a skirt, like the, who someone who had traditionally worn pants or dressed presented in a more masculine way is kind of comes in wearing a different kind of outfit. I think just affirming and confirming those things, even subtly like, hey, I like your skirt. That's awesome. I love those earrings. That is huge. Yeah, yeah and, all, and affirming pe people's choices, not things that they don't have choices about. Like yeah. yeah. Sure, especially with kids that, mm -hmm. that we're always <laughs> validating things that they have agency over. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. otherwise, I think you're playing into assumptions or drawing attention to um, mm -hmm. yeah, like bodies rather than people. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. For that's, sure. Yeah. That's uh, like, I. One thing I think is I think a lot of young people who grow up, young girls feel or have experiences the the number of times someone's like, oh my God, you look so pretty today. And and yeah. and how that from a young age just got ingrained into you as the thing that got people to pay attention to you. Um, and so I try really hard to not do that. I try to, yeah. you know, comment on like the clothes that they chose to wear or their talent. So many of our kids are so freaking talented. 
Like they bring in their sketchbooks and they're just full of this awesome art. I'm like, what's happened? This is so cool. You know, and one little thing that I did is I have a pride flag in my office and I have it specifically positioned. So it's right behind me whenever zooms are happening. Um, so like, yeah. you know, I did a parent meeting and it was right there and I recorded the video and it went out to everyone. So it's, you know, even if a kid just sees that that's there, hopefully they yeah. know that they can just come into my office and it's fine. You can come talk to yeah. me about anything. Yeah. And it's, you that's know, I'm not going to be like, Hey parents, look, see it, Wait, but it's there all the time. So hopefully it does a little something. We'll see. I yeah, thought. no, I think it, I think you've probably already influenced a lot of kids in a positive way. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk about, I, I saw a thread on Instagram that was really meaningful me, to me. The account is voice P E D. Um, and this person did a thread on colonial music education versus indigenous music education. Um, and something I've thought about a lot in programming is that classical music has such an emphasis on virtuosity over everything else. And virtuosity tends to be informed by white supremacy, by all of these standards that have been really harmful. And when we think about um, programming music, I guess if, if we think about elevating musicality over virtuosity, already we're including more people whose voices are really important. Um, and I think working with students um, to to just open up like what is classical music that when you're in when you're an educator I think you have a big opportunity to define what sticks around um, in terms of pillars of classical music or what changes slowly or quickly and to have more space for improvising to have more space for always learning to have more space with, for like connecting with. Um, yourself as a musician and yourself as a music maker like there are ways I think that we can shape where classical music is going especially when we're working with young people um, that maybe shies away from colonial music education yeah. and looks more towards these awesome concepts that I recently read about um, about yeah. an indigenous approach I love that making. I love that yeah, yeah. and you know just just uh, that remind it makes me think about just you know and that's sort of just sort of circling back to the to, to what our goals as chamber queer are it's really just about just like gender getting take getting rid of the gender binary getting rid of the concert hall binary yeah. with you know the rest of the world like this is just taking down walls and poking holes in walls and like that's what it's all about in all these various ways um and you know also just makes me think about the idea of composers and performers and how that used to be much more was something that was just very common. Like you would just, you're a composer, you're a performer. And for so many years, it's been like, oh, you do one or the other, right? And there's, I, there's started, and maybe you guys have noticed this too, there's more of that coming back where performers are more inclined to also be composers. So taking down that wall. And I think in terms of education, that's a great way to engage kids early on. Also this improvisation thing for sure, but also just showing that you don't have to be in this one little tunnel as a classical musician, right? Like you can, you can like explore all of these rooms, you know, and getting kids to compose at a young age and you don't have to even know how to read music. Mm -hmm. Like you can compose in so many various ways. Um, and I think doing that already takes down a certain wall yeah. for, for kids and for, even for, you know, adults too. Um, so I think, even for your youth orchestra, right? Like, do you could do some projects where they have they have they start doing their own compositions, or maybe you do a composition together as a group. There's so many different ways to do that, and I think once you start opening your mind, even in just the context of classical music, like all of those other your senses are kind of heightened to this kind of idea, and you're more inclined to be open to other things too, um, in terms of you know, all different kinds of things, be more open to other people, other ideas. So I think yeah. any way that you can do that. Yeah, I love it. Make so before we let you go, go today, we will ask the question that we ask all of our podcast guests at the end of each episode. How do we orchestrate change? Do you have another hour? <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, I think you just, you have to not do so much orchestrating and you have to just, 
sort of give people a platform and a voice. And, you know, I think the more you do that, the more you listen, then the more you're going to learn and find out. That was such a good answer, Jules. I was tempted to just leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, I think amplifying marginalized voices and in in every step of things, whether it's students or professionals or who who is in what jobs, is just opening up things to be more inclusive, not because it's radical or trendy, but because everybody benefits from spaces where uh, there are less assumptions, where there are there's less oppression where there where the walls have been broken down that that's not just something that is helpful to queer people that is really a better environment for music making a better environment for connecting with audiences a better environment for um developing a deeper passion for classical music callie and jules thank you so so much for joining us today it has been an absolute pleasure yeah. talking to you Oh, totally. And thanks for all the great work that you guys are doing in Ohio. Like, keep it up. Like, that's amazing, you know, and like people who do who are who are working in the, you know, in these other these places where you maybe aren't, you know, getting the acknowledgement that you deserve. Like, we hear you, we see you and keep up the good work. Aww. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to run, but really nice to meet both of you. Good to yeah. see you, Jules. And yeah, thanks for fostering such a good discussion. Jules Biber and Callie Sugatsky from Chamber Queer. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer and mixer is Nathan Maslick with video and audio editing by Shoreline Media. Thank you for listening and see you next time.